Chapter Seventeen of Jock of the Bushveld. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sally McConnell in Betty's Bay, South Africa, in February two thousand and ten. Jock of the Bushveld by Sir Percy Fitzpatrick. Chapter Seventeen. Buffalo, bushfire, and wild dogs. The summer slipped away, the full-pulsed ripeness of the year. Beauty and passion, sunshine and storm, long spells of peace and gentleness, of springing life and radiant glory, short intervals of reckless tempest and destructive storm. Among the massed evergreens of the woods, there stood out here and there bright spots of colour, the careless dabs from nature's artist hand, yellow and brown, orange and crimson, all vividly distinct, yet all in perfect harmony. The rivers, fed from the replenished mountain stores, ran full but clear. The days were bright, the nights were cold, the grass was rank and seeding, and it was time to go. Once more the bush felt beckoned us away. We picked a spot where grass and water were good, and waited for the rivers to fall and it was while loitering there that a small hunting-party from the fields making for the Sabi came across us and camped for the night. In the morning two of our party joined them for a few days to try for something big. It was too early in the season for really good sport. The rank tropical grass, six to eight feet high in most places, twelve to fourteen in some, was too green to burn yet and the stout stems and heavy seed-heads made walking as difficult as in a field of tangled sugar-cane. For long stretches it was not possible to see five yards, and the dew in the early mornings was so heavy that after a hundred yards of such going one was drenched to the skin. We were forced into the more open parts, the higher, stonier, more barren ground, where just then the big game was by no means plentiful. On the third day, two of us started out to try a new quarter in the hilly country rising towards the berg. My companion, Francis, was an experienced hunter, and his idea was that we should find the big game, not on the hot, humid flats or the stony rises, but still higher up on the breezy hilltops, or in the cool, shady kloofs running towards the mountains. We passed a quantity of smaller game that morning, and several times heard the stampede of big animals, wildebeest and waterbuck, as we found by the spoor, but it was absolutely impossible to see them. The dew was so heavy that even our hats were soaking wet, and times out of number we had to stop to wipe the water out of our eyes in order to see our way. A complete ducking would not have made the least difference. Jock fared better than we did, finding openings and game tracks at his own level which were of no use to us. He also knew better than we did what was going on ahead, and it was tantalizing in the extreme to see him slow down and stand with his nose thrown up, giving quick, soft sniffs, and ranging his head from side to side, when he knew there was something quite close, and knew, too, that a few more toiling steps in that rank grass would be followed by a rush of something which we would never see. Once we heard a footstamp not twenty yards off, and stood for a couple of minutes on tip-toe, trying to pierce the screen of grass in front, 
absolutely certain that eyes and ears were turned on us in death-like silence, waiting for the last little proof of the intruder that would satisfy their owners and start them off before we could get a glimpse. The silence must have made them suspicious, for at some signal unknown to us the troop broke away, and we had the mortification to see something which we had ignored as a branch tilt slowly back and disappear. There was no mistaking in the kudu bull's horns once they moved. After two hours of this we struck a stream, and there we made somewhat better pace and less noise, often taking to the bed of the creek for easier going. There, too, we found plenty of drinking places, and plenty of fresh spoor of the bigger game, and as the hills began to rise in view above the bush and trees, we found what Francis was looking for. Something caught his eye on the far side of the stream, and he waded in. I followed, and when halfway through, saw the contented look on his face, and caught his words. Buffalo! I thought so! We sat down, then, to think it out. The spoor told of a troop of a dozen to sixteen animals, bulls, cows, and calves. Even in the soft, moist ground at the stream's edge, the water had not yet oozed into most of the prints. Fortunately, there was a light breeze from the hills, and as it seemed probable that in any case they would make that way for the hot part of the day, we decided to follow for some distance on the track, and then make for the likeliest port in the hills. The buffalo had come up from the low country in the night, on a course striking the creek diagonally in the drinking-place. Their departing spoor went off at a slight tangent from the stream, the two trails making a very wide angle at the drinking-place, and confirming the idea that after their night's feed in the rich grass lower down, they were making for the hills again in the morning, and had touched at the stream to drink. Jock seemed to gather from our whispered conversation and silent movements that there was work to hand, and his eyes moved from one face to the other as we talked, much as a child watches the faces in a conversation it cannot quite follow. When we got up and began to move along the trail, he gave one of his little sideways bounds, as if he half thought of throwing a somersault and restrained himself, and then with several approved waggings of his tail, settled down at once to business. Jock went in front. It was best so, and quite safe, for whilst certain to spot anything long before we could, there was not the least risk of his rushing it, or making any noise. The slightest whisper of a st from me would have brought him to a breathless standstill at any moment, but even this was not likely to be needed, for he kept as close a watch on my face as I did on him. There was, of course, no difficulty whatever in following the spoor. The animals were as big as cattle, and their trail through the rank grass was as plain as a road. Our difficulty was to get near enough to see them without being heard. Under the downtrodden grass there were plenty of dry sticks to step on, any of which would have been as fatal to our chances as a pistol shot, and even the unavoidable rustle of the grass might betray us, while the buffalo themselves remained hidden. Thus our progress was very slow, a particularly troublesome impediment being the grass stems thrown down across the trail by the animals crossing and recrossing each other's spoor and stopping to crop a mouthful here and there or perhaps to play. The tambuki grass in these parts has a stem thicker than a lead pencil, 
more like a young bamboo than grass, and these stems, thrown crossways by storms or game, make an entanglement through which the foot cannot be forced. It means high stepping all the time. We expected to follow the spoor for several miles before coming on the buffalo, probably right into the kloof towards which it appeared to lead, but were nevertheless quite prepared to drop onto them at any moment, knowing well how game will loiter on their way when undisturbed, and vary their time and course, instinctively avoiding the two regular habits which would make them an easy prey. Jock moved steadily along the trodden track, sliding easily through the grass, or jumping softly and noiselessly over impediments, and we followed, looking ahead as far as the winding course of the trail permitted. To the right and left of us stood the screen of tall grass, bush and trees. Once Jock stopped, throwing up his nose, and stood for some seconds while we held our breath. But having satisfied himself that there was nothing of immediate consequence, he moved on again, rather more slowly as it appeared to us. I looked at Francis's face. It was pale and set like marble, and his watchful grey eyes were large and wide like an antelope's, as though opened out to take in everything, and those moments of intense interest and expectation were the best part of a memorable day. There was something near. We felt it. Jock was going more carefully than ever, with his head up most of the time, and the feeling of expectation grew stronger and stronger until it amounted to absolute certainty. Then Jock stopped, stopped in mid-stride, not with his nose upranging for scent, but with head erect, ears cocked, and tail poised, dead still. He was looking at something. We had reached the end of the grass where the bush and trees of the mountain slope had choked it out, and before us there was fairly thick bush mottled with black shadows and patches of bright sunlight in which it was most difficult to see anything. There we stood, like statues, the dog in front with the two men abreast behind him, all peering intently. Twice Jock slowly turned his head and looked into my eyes, and I felt keenly the sense of hopeless inferiority. There it is. What are you going to do? was what the first look seemed to say, and the second, Well... What are you waiting for? How long we stood thus, it is not possible to say. Time is no measure of such things, and to me it seemed unending suspense. But we stood our ground scarcely breathing, knowing that something was there, because he saw it and told us so, and knowing that as soon as he moved, it would be gone. Then, close to the ground, there was a movement. Something swung, and the full picture flashed upon us. It was a buffalo calf standing in the shade of a big bush, with its back towards us, and it was the swishing of the tail that had betrayed it. We dared not breathe a word or pass a look. A face turned might have caught some glint of light and shown us up. So we stood like statues, each knowing that the other was looking for the herd, and would fire when he got the chance at one of the full-grown animals. My eyes were strained and burning from the intensity of the effort to see, but except the calf, 
I could not make out a living thing. The glare of the yellow grass in which we stood, and the sun-splotched darkness beyond it, beat me. At last, in the corner of my eye, I saw Francis's rifle rise, as slowly, almost, as the mercury in a warmed thermometer. There was a long pause. And then came the shot and wild snorts of alarm and rage. A dozen huge black forms started into life for a second and as quickly vanished, scattering and crashing through the jungle. The first clear impression was that of Jock, who, after one swift run forward for a few yards, stood ready to spring off in pursuit, looking back at me and waiting for the word to go. But at the sign of my raised hand, opened with palm towards him, he subsided slowly and lay down flat with his head resting on his paws. "'Did you see?' asked Francis. "'Not until you fired. I heard it strike. What was it?' "'Hanged if I know. I heard it too. It was one of the big uns, but bull or cow, I don't know.' "'Where did you get it?' "'Well, I couldn't make out more than a black patch in the bush. "'It moved once, but I couldn't see how it was standing, end, on, or across. "'It may be hit anywhere. "'I took for the middle of the patch and let drive. "'But risky, eh? "'Seems like taking chances. "'Well, it was no use waiting. "'We came for this.' "'And then added with a careless laugh, "'They always clear from the first shot if you get them at close quarters, "'but the fun'll begin now. "'Expect he'll lay for us in the track somewhere.' That is the way of the wounded buffalo. We all knew that, and old Rocky's advice came to mind with a good deal of point. Keep cool and shoot straight, or stay right home. And Jock's expectant, watchful look smote me with another memory. It was my dog. A few yards from where the buffalo had stood, we picked up the blood spoor. There was not very much of it but we saw from the marks on the bushes here and there, and more distinctly on some grass further on, that the wound was pretty high up, and on the right side. Crossing a small stretch of more open bush, we reached the dense growth along the banks of the stream, and as this continued up into the kloof, it was clear we had a tough job before us. Animals, when badly wounded, nearly always leave the herd, and very often go downwind so as to be able to scent and avoid their pursuers. This fellow had followed the herd upwind, and that rather puzzled us. A wounded buffalo in thick bush is considered to be about as nasty a customer as any one may desire to tackle, for its vindictive, indomitable courage and extraordinary cunning are a very formidable combination, as a long list of fatalities bears witness. Its favourite device, so old hunters will tell you, is to make off downwind when hit, and after going for some distance come back again in a semicircle to intersect its own spoor, and there, under good cover, lie in wait for those who may follow up. This makes the sport quite as interesting as need be, for the chances are more nearly even than they generally are in hunting. The buffalo chooses the ground that suits its purpose of ambushing its enemy, and naturally selects a spot where concealment is possible. But making every allowance for this, it seems little short of a miracle that the huge black beast is able to hide itself so effectually that it can charge from a distance of a dozen yards onto those who are searching for it. The secret of it seems to lie in two things. First, absolute stillness, and second, breaking up the colour. 
no wild animal, except those protected by distance and open country, will stand against a background of light or of uniform colour, nor will it, as a rule, allow its own shape to form an unbroken patch against its chosen background. They work on nature's lines. Look at the ostrich, the cock, black and handsome, so strikingly different from the commonplace grey hen. Considering that for periods of six weeks at a stretch, they are anchored to one spot hatching the eggs, turn and turn about, it seems that one or other must be an easy victim for the beast of prey, since the same background cannot possibly suit both. But they know that too, so the grey hen sits by day, and the black cock by night. And the ostrich is not the fool that it's thought to be, burying its head in the sand. Knowing how the long stem of a neck will catch the eye, it lays it flat on the ground, as other birds do when danger threatens the nest or brood, and concealment is better than flight. That tame chicks will do this in a bare paddock is only a laughable assertion of instinct. Look at the zebra. There is nothing more striking, nothing that arrests the eye more sharply in the zoo, than this vivid contrast of colour. Yet, in the bush, the wavy stripes of black and white are a protection, enabling him to hide at will. I have seen a wildebeest effectually hidden by a single blighted branch, a kudubul by a few twisty sticks, a crouching lion by a wisp of feathery grass no higher than one's knee, no bigger than a vase of flowers, yet the marvel of it is always fresh. After a couple of hundred yards of that sort of going, we changed our plan, taking to the creek again and making occasional cross-cuts to the trail, to be sure he was still ahead. It was certain then that the buffalo was following the herd and making for the port, and as he had not stopped once on our account, we took to the creek after the fourth cross-cut and made what pace we could to reach the narrow gorge where we reckoned to pick up the spoor again. There are, however, few short-cuts and no certainties in hunting, when we reached the port, there was no trace to be found of the wounded buffalo. The rest of the herd had passed in, but we failed to find blood or other trace of the wounded one, and Jock was clearly as much at fault as we were. We had overshot the mark, and there was nothing for it but to hark back to the last blood spoor, and by following it up, find out what had happened. This took over an hour, for we spoored him then with the utmost caution being convinced that the buffalo, if not dead, was badly wounded and lying in wait for us. We came on his stand in a well-chosen spot, where the game path took a sharp turn round some heavy bushes. The buffalo had stood, not where one would naturally expect, in the dense cover which seemed just suited for his purpose, but among lighter bush on the opposite side and about twenty yards nearer to us. There was no room for doubt about his hostile intentions, and when we recalled how we had instantly picked out the thick bush on the left, to the exclusion of everything else, as the spot to be watched, his selection of more open ground on the other side, and nearer to us, seemed so fiendishly clever, that it made one feel cold and creepy. One hesitates to say it was deliberately planned, yet, plan, instinct, or accident, there was the fact. The marks showed us he was badly hit, but there was no broken limb, and no doubt he was good for some hours yet. We followed along the spoor more cautiously than ever, 
and when we reached the sharp turn beyond the thick bush we found that the path was only a few yards from the stream, so that on our way up the bed of the creek we had passed within twenty yards of where the buffalo was waiting for us. No doubt he had heard us as we walked past, and had winded us later on when we got ahead of him into the port. What had he made of it? What had he done? Had he followed up to attack us? Was he waiting somewhere near? Or had he broken away into the bush on finding himself headed off? These were some of the questions we asked ourselves as we crept along. Well, what he had done did not answer our question. On reaching the port again we found his spoor, freshly made since we had been there, and he had walked right along through the gorge without stopping again and gone into the kloof beyond. Whether he had followed us up when we got ahead of him, hoping to stalk us from behind, or had gone ahead, expecting to meet us coming downwind to look for him, or when he heard us pass downstream again, and, it may be, thought we had given up pursuit, had simply walked on after the herd, were questions never answered. A breeze had risen since morning, and as we approached the hills it grew stronger. In the port itself it was far too strong for our purpose, the wind coming through the narrow opening like a forced draught. The herd would not stand there, and it was not probable that the wounded animal would stop until he joined the others or reached a more sheltered place. We were keen on the chase, and as he had about an hour's start of us and it was already midday, there was no time to waste. Inside the port the kloof opened out into a big valley away to our left, our left being the right bank of the stream, and bordering the valley on that side there were many miles of timbered kloofs and green slopes, with a few kaffir kraals visible in the distance. But to the right the formation was quite different, and rather peculiar. The stream, known to the natives as Slambanyati, or Buffalo's Bathing Place, had in the course of time shortened its course to the port by eating into the left bank, thus leaving a high and in most places inaccessible terrace above it on the left side, and a wide stretch of flat alluvium on the right. This terrace was bounded on one side by the steep bank of the creek, and walled in on the other side by the precipitous crances of the mountains. At the top end it opened out like a fan which died away in a frayed edge in the numberless small kloofs and spurs, fringing the amphitheatre of the hills. The shape was in fact something like the human arm and hand with the fingers outspread. The elbow was the port, the arm the terrace, except that the terrace was irregularly curved, and the fingers the small kloofs in the mountains. No doubt the haunts of one of the buffalo were away in the fingers, and we worked steadily along the spoor in that direction. Game paths were numerous and very irregular, and the place was a perfect jungle of trees, bush, bramble, and the tallest, rankest grass. I have ridden in that valley many times since then, through grass standing several feet above my head. It was desperately hard work, but we did want to get the buffalo, and although the place was full of game, and we put up kudu, wildebeest, ritbuck, bushbuck, and diker, we held to the wounded buffalo's spoor, neglecting all else. Just before ascending the terrace, we heard the curious far-travelling sound of kaffirs calling to each other from a distance, but, except for a passing comment, paid no heed to it, and passed on. Later we heard it again and again, and at last, when we happened to pause in a more open portion of the bush, after we had gone halfway along the terrace, 
The calling became so frequent and came from so many quarters that we stopped to take note. Francis, who spoke Zulu like one of themselves, at last made out a word or two which gave the clue. They are after the wounded buffalo, he said. Come on, man, before they get their dogs, or we'll never see him again. Knowing then that the buffalo was a long way ahead, we scrambled on as fast as we could whilst holding to his track, but it was very hot and very rough, and, to add to our troubles, smoke from a grass fire came driving into our faces. "'Niggers burning the slopes! Confound them!' Francis growled. They habitually fire the grass in patches during the summer and autumn, as soon as it is dry enough to burn, in order to get young grass for the winter or the early spring, and although the smoke worried us, there did not seem to be anything unusual about the fire. But ten minutes later we stopped again. The smoke was perceptibly thicker. Birds were flying past us downwind with numbers of locusts and other insects. Two or three times we heard buck and other animals break back, and all were going the same way. Then the same thought struck us both. It was stamped in our faces. This was no ordinary mountain grass fire. It was the bush. Francis was a quiet fellow, one of the sort it is well not to rouse. His grave is in the bushveld, where his unbeaten record amongst intrepid lion-hunters was made, and where he fell in the war, leaving another and greater record to his name. The blood rose slowly to his face, until it was bricky red and he looked an ugly customer, as he said. "'The brutes have fired the valley to burn him out. Come on, quick! We must get out of this, onto the slopes!' We did not know then that there were no slopes, only a precipitous face of rock with dense jungle to the foot of it, and after we had spent a quarter of an hour in that effort, we found our way blocked by the crants in a tangle of undergrowth much worse than that in the middle of the terrace. The noise made by the wind in the trees and our struggling through the grass and bush had prevented our hearing the fire at first, but now its ever-growing roar drowned all sounds. Ordinarily there would have been no real difficulty in avoiding a bushfire, but pinned in between the river and the precipice, and with miles of dense bush behind us, it was not at all pleasant. Had we turned back even then and made for the port, it is possible we might have travelled faster than the fire, but it would have been rough work indeed. Moreover, it would have been going back, and we did want to get the buffalo, so we decided to make one more try towards the river this time. It was not much of a try, however, and we had gone no further than the middle of the terrace again when it became alarmingly clear that this fire meant business. The wind increased greatly, as it always does once a bush fire gets a start. The air was thick with smoke and full of flying things, in the bush and grass about us there was a constant scurrying. The terror of stampede was in the very atmosphere. A few words of consultation decided us, and we started to burn a patch for standing-room and protection. The hot sun and strong wind had long evaporated all the dew and moisture from the grass, but the sap was still up, and the fire, our fire, seemed cruelly long in catching on. With bundles of dry grass for brands, we started burns in twenty places over a length of a hundred yards, and each little flame licked up, spread a little, and then hesitated, or died out. It seemed as if ours would never take, while the other came on with roars and leaps, sweeping clouds of sparks and ash over us in the dense rolling mass of smoke. At last a fierce rush of wind struck down on us, 
and in a few seconds each little flame became a living demon of destruction. Another minute, and the stretch before us was a field of swaying flame. There was a sudden roar and crackle, as of musketry, and the whole mass seemed lifted into the air in one blazing sheet. It simply leapt into life and swept everything before it. When we opened our scorch eyes, the ground in front of us was all black, with only here and there odd lights and torches dotted about it, like tapers on a pall. And on ahead, beyond the trellis-work of bare scorched trees, the wall of flame swept on. Then down on the wings of the wind came the other fire, and before it fled every living thing. Heaven only knows what passed us in those few minutes when a broken stream of terrified creatures dashed by, hardly swerving to avoid us. There was no coherent picture left of that scene, just a medley of impressions linked up by flashes of unforgettable vividness. A herd of kudu came crashing by. I know there was a herd, but only the first and last will come to mind. The space between seems blurred. The clear impressions are of the kudu bull in front, with nose out thrust, eyes shut against the bush, and great horns laid back upon the withers, as he swept along, opening the way for his herd. And then as they vanished, the big ears, you neck, and tilting hindquarters of the last cow, between them nothing but a mass of moving grey. The wildebeest went by an Indian fowl, uniform in shape, colour, and horns, and strangely uniform in their mechanical action, lowered heads, and fiercely determined rush. A ritbuck ram stopped close to us, looking back wide-eyed and anxious, and whistled shrilly, and then cantered on with head erect and white tail flapping, but its mate neither answered nor came by. A terrified hare with its ears laid flat scuttled past within a yard, for Francis and did not seem to see him. Above us scared birds swept or fluttered downwind, while others again came up swirling and swinging about, darting boldly through the smoke to catch the insects driven before the fire. But what comes back with the suggestion of infinitely pathetic helplessness is the picture of a beetle. We stood on the edge of our burn, waiting for the ground to cool, and at my feet a pair of tok-toki beetles, hump-backed and bandy legs, came toiling slowly and earnestly along. They reached the edge of our burn, touched the warm ash, and turned patiently aside to walk round it. A school of chattering monkeys raced out into the blackened flat, and screamed shrilly with terror as the hot earth and cinders burnt their feet. Porcupine, ant-bear, meerkat. They are vague, so vague that nothing is left but the shadow of their passing. But there is one other thing, seen in a flash as brief as the others, for a second or two only, but never to be forgotten. Out of the yellow grass, high up in the waving tops, came sailing down on us the swaying head and glittering eyes of a black mamba, swiftest, most vicious, most deadly of snakes. Francis and I were not five yards apart, and it passed between us, giving a quick, chilly, beady look at us, pitiless and hateful, and one hiss as the slithering tongue shot out, and that was all, and it sailed past with strange, effortless movement. How much of the body was on the ground propelling it I cannot even guess, but we had to look upwards to see the head as the snake passed between us. The scorching breath of the fire drove us before it onto the baked ground, inches deep in ashes and glowing cinders, 
where we kept marking time to ease our blistering feet. Our hats were pulled down to screen our necks as we stood with our backs to the coming flames. Our flannel shirts were so hot that we kept shifting our shoulders for relief. Jock, who had no screen, and whose feet had no protection, was in my arms, and we strove to shield ourselves from the furnace blast with the branches we had used to beat out the fire round the big tree which was our main shelter. The heat was awful. Live brands were flying past all the time, and some struck us. Myriads of sparks fell around and on us, burning numberless small holes in our clothing and dotting blisters on our backs. Great sheets of flame leaping out from the driving glare, and attached by many yards from their source, were visible for quite a space in front of us. Then, just at its maddest and fiercest, there came a gasp and sob and the fire-devil died behind us as it reached the black, bare ground. Our burn divided it as an island splits the flood, and it swept along our flanks in two great walls of living, leaping, roaring flame. Two hundred yards away there was a bare yellow place in a world of inky black, and to that haven we ran. It was strange to look about and see the naked country all round us, where but a few minutes earlier the tall grass had shut us in, but the big bare ant-heap was untouched, and there we flung ourselves down, utterly done. Faint from heat and exhaustion, scorched and blistered, face and arms, back and feet, weary and footsore, and with boots burnt through, we reached camp long after dark, glad to be alive. We had forgotten the wounded buffalo. He seemed part of another life. There was no more hunting for us. Our feet had gone in and we were well content to sleep and rest. The burnt stubbly ends of the grass had pierced the bake leather of our boots many times, and Jock too had suffered badly, and could hardly bear to set foot to the ground the next day. The best we could hope for was to be sound enough to return to our wagons in two or three days' time. The camp was under a very large wild fig tree, whose dense canopy gave us shade all through the day. We had burnt the grass for some twenty or thirty yards round as a protection against bushfires, and as the trees and scrub were not thick just there, it was possible to see in various directions, rather further than one usually can in the bushveld. The big tree was a good fair landmark by day, and at night we made a good fire, which, owing to the position of the camp, one could see from a considerable distance. These precautions were for the benefit of strayed or belated members of the party. But I mention them because the position of the camp and the fire brought us a strange visitor the last night of our stay there. There were, I think, seven white men, and the moving spirit of the party, old Teddy Blacklow of Ballarat, was one of the old alluvial diggers, a warm-hearted, impulsive, ever-young old boy, and a rare good sportsman. That was Teddy, the man in muddy moleskins, who stretched out the hand of friendship when the boy was down and said, you come along o' me, one of God's sort. Teddy's spirits were always up. His presence breathed a cheery optimism on the blankest day. His humour lighted everything. His stories kept us going, and his language was a joy for ever. In a community in which such things savoured of eccentricity, Teddy was an abstainer, and never swore. But if actual profanity was avoided, the dear old boy all unconsciously afforded strong support to those who hold that a man must find relief in vigorous expression. 
To do this without violating his principles, he invented words and phrases, meaningless in themselves, but in general outline, so to say, resembling the worst in vogue, and the effect produced by them upon the sensitive was simply horrifying. Teddy himself was blissfully unconscious of this, for his language, being scrupulously innocent, was deemed by him to be suited to all circumstances and to every company. The inevitable consequence was that the first impression produced by him on the few women he had ever met was that of an abandoned old reprobate, whose scant veil of disguise only made the outrage of his language more marked. Poor old Teddy! Kindest and gentlest and dearest of souls! How he would have stared at this, speechless with surprise, and how we used to laugh at what someone called his glittering profanities! Pity it is that they too must go, for one dare not reproduce the best of them. It was between eight and nine o'clock on the last day of our stay. Francis and I were fit again, and Jock's feet, thanks to care and washing and plenty of castor oil, no longer troubled him. We were examining our boots, re-soled now with rawhide in the rough but effective felt fashion. Teddy was holding forth about the day's chase whilst he cut away the pith of a kudu's horns and scraped the skull. Others were busy on their trophies too, and the kaffirs round their own fire were keeping up the simultaneous gabble characteristic of hunting boys after a good day and with plenty of meat in camp. I was sitting on a small camp-stool, critically examining a boot, and wondering if the dried hide would grip well enough to permit of the top lacings being removed. And Jock was lying in front of me, carefully licking the last sore spot on one forepaw, when I saw his head switch up suddenly, and his whole body set hard in a study of intense listening. Then he got up and trotted briskly off some ten or fifteen yards, and stood. A bright spot picked out by the glare of the campfire, with his back towards me and his uneven ears topping him off. I walked out to him, and silence fell on the camp. All watched and listened. At first we heard nothing. But soon the call of a wild dog explained Jock's movements. The sound, however, did not come from the direction in which he was looking, but a good deal to the right, and as he instantly looked to this new quarter, I concluded that this was not the dog he had previously heard, or else it must have moved rapidly. There was another wait, and then there followed calls from other quarters. There was nothing unusual in the presence of wild dogs. Hyenas, jackals, wild dogs, and all the smaller beasts of prey were heard nightly. What attracted attention in this case was the regular calling from different points. The boys said the wild dogs were hunting something, and calling to each other to indicate the direction of the hunt, so that those in front might turn the buck, and by keeping it in a circle enable fresh or rested dogs to jump in from time to time, and so, eventually, wear the poor hunted creature down. This, according to the natives, is the system of the wild pack. When they cannot find easy prey in the young, weak or wounded, and are forced by hunger to hunt hard, they first scatter widely over the chosen area where game is located, and then one buck is chosen, the easiest victim, a ewe with young for choice, and cutting it from the herd they follow that one, and that alone with remorseless invincible persistency. They begin the hunt knowing that it will last for hours, knowing too that in speed they have no chance against the buck, and when the intended victim is cut out from the herd, one or two of the dogs, so the natives say, 
take up the chase, and with long, easy gallop keep it going, giving no moment's rest for breath. From time to time they give their weird, peculiar call, and others of the pack, posted afar, head the buck off to turn it back again. The fresh ones then take up the chase, and the first pair drop out to rest and wait, or follow slowly until their chance and turn come round again. There is something so hateful in the calculated, pitiless method that one feels it a duty to kill the cruel brutes whenever a chance occurs. The hunt went on round us, sometimes near enough to hear the dog's eager cries quite clearly, sometimes so far away that for a while nothing could be heard, and Jock moved from point to point in the outermost circle of the campfire's light nearest to the chase. When at last hunters and hunted completed their wide circuit around the camp, and passed again the point where we had first heard them, the end seemed near, for there were no longer single calls widely separated, but the voices of the pack in hot, close chase. They seemed to be passing half a mile away from us, but in the stillness of the night sounds travel far, and one can only guess. Again a little while, and the cries sounded nearer, as if coming from one quarter, not moving round us as before, in a few minutes more, and it was certain they were still nearer, and coming straight towards us. We took our guns then, and I called Jock back to where we stood, under the tree with our backs to the fire. The growing sounds came on, out of the night where all was hidden, with the weird crescendo effect of a coming flood. We could pick them out then, the louder, harsher cries, the crashing through the bush, the rush in the grass, the sobbing gasps in front, and the hungry panting after. The hunt came at us like a cyclone out of the stillness, and in the forefront of it there burst into the circle of light an impala you, with mouth open and haunting, hunted, desperate eyes and wide-spread ears, and the last staggering strides brought her in amongst us, tumbling at our feet. A kaffir jumped out with an assegai aloft, but Teddy, with a spring of a tiger and a yell of rage, swung his rifle round and down on assegai arm and head, and dropped the boy in his tracks. Crush! Dad! Criminy! What the heck are you up to? And the fiery, soft-hearted old boy was down to his knees in a second, panting with anger and excitement, and threw his arms about the buck. The foremost of the pack followed hot foot close behind the buck, oblivious of fire and men, seeing nothing but the quarry, and at a distance of five yards a mixed volley of bullets and assegais tumbled it over. Another followed, and again another, both fell where they had stopped a dozen yards away, puzzled by the fire and the shooting, and still more and more came on, but, warned by the unexpected check in front, they stopped at the clearing's edge, until over twenty pairs of eyes, reflecting the fire's light, shone out at us in a rough semicircle. The shotguns came in better then, and more than half the pack went under that night before the others cleared off. Perhaps they did not realise that the shots and flashes were not part of the campfire from which they seemed to come. Perhaps their system of never relinquishing a chase had not been tried against the white man before. One of the wild dogs, wounded by a shot, seemed to go mad with agony and raced straight into the clearing towards the fire, uttering the strangest, maniac-like yaps. Jock, all along, had been straining to go for them, from where I had jammed him between my feet as I sat and fired, and the charge of this dog was more than he could bear. He shot out like a rocket, and the collision sent the two flying apart, but he was on to the wild dog again and had it by the throat before it could recover. Instantly, 
The row of lights went out, as if switched off. They were no longer looking at us. There was a rustle and a sound of padded feet, and dim grey-looking forms gathered at the edge of the clearing nearest where Jock and the wounded dog fought. I shouted to Jock to come back, and several of us ran out to help, just as another of the pack made a dash in. It seemed certain that Jock, gripping and worrying his enemy's throat, had neither time nor thought for anything else. Yet as the fresh dog came at him, he let go his grip of the other and jumped to meet the newcomer. In mid-spring, Jock caught the other by the ear, and the two spun completely round, their positions being reversed. Then, with another wrench as he landed, he flung the attacker behind him and jumped back at the wounded one, which had already turned to go. It looked like the clean and easy movement of a finished gymnast. It was an affair of a few seconds only, for of course the instant we got a chance at the dogs without the risk to Jock, both were shot and he, struggling to get at the others, was hailed back to the tree. While this was going on, the impala stood with wide-spread legs, dazed and helpless, between Teddy's feet, just as he had placed it. Its breath came in broken, choking sobs. The look of terror and despair had not yet faded from the staring eyes. The head swayed from side to side, the mouth hung open, and the tongue lolled out. All told beyond the power of words, the tale of desperate struggle and exhaustion. It drank greedily from the dish that Teddy held for it, emptied it, and five minutes later drank it again, and then lay down. For half an hour it lay there, slowly recovering. Sometimes for spells of a few minutes it appeared to breathe normally once more. Then the heavy, open-mouthed panting would return again, and all the time Teddy kept on stroking or patting it gently, and talking to it, as if he were comforting a child, and every now and then bursting out with sudden gusty execrations in his own peculiar style of wild dogs and kaffirs. At last it rose briskly, and standing between his knees looked about, taking no notice of Teddy's hands laid on either side and gently patting it. No one moved or spoke. Jock, at my feet, appeared most interested of all, but I'm afraid his views differed considerably from ours on that occasion, and he must have been greatly puzzled. He remained watching intently, with his head laid on his paws, his ears cocked, and his brown eyes fixed unblinkingly, and at each movement on the buck's part something stirred in him, drawing every muscle tense and ready for the spring, internal grips which were reflected in the twitching and stiffening of his head and back, but each time, as I laid a hand on him, he slackened out again, and subsided. We sat like statues as the impala walked out from its stall between Teddy's knees, and stood looking about wonderingly at the white faces and black, at the strange figures, and at the fire. It stepped out quite quietly, much as it might have moved about here and there any peaceful morning in its usual haunts. The head swung about briskly, but unalarmed, and ears and eyes were turned this way and that, in easy confidence and mild curiosity. With a few more steps it threaded its way close to one sitting figure and round a bucket, stepped daintily over Teddy's rifle, and passed the kudu's head unnoticed. It seemed to us, even to us and at the moment, like a scene in fairyland in which some spell held us, while the beautiful wild thing strolled about, unfrightened. 
A few yards away it stopped for perhaps a couple of minutes. Its back was towards us in the fire. The silence was absolute, and it stood thus with eyes and ears for the bush alone. There was a warning whisk of the white tail, and it started off again, this time at a brisk trot, and we thought it had gone. But at the edge of the clearing it once more stood and listened. Now and again the ears flickered, and the head turned slightly one way or another, but no sound came from the bush. The outthrust nose was raised with gentle tosses, but no taint reached it on the gentle breeze. All was well. It looked slowly round, giving one long, full gaze back at us, which seemed to be, Good-bye, and thank you, and cantered out into the dark. End of chapter 17